All right, we're going to continue on our journey through the book of Judges this morning. Uh, we've made it all the way into chapter 6, and we're going to cover, uh, as it says in your bulletin, 1 through 40. That was my plan. Uh, but as I studied throughout the week, it became apparent that I wouldn't be able to talk for three or four hours. And so uh, we're only going to make it through verse 10 this morning, uh, just through verse 10. And uh, there, the one big thing, if you're only going to walk away with one thing this morning, I think I would like it to be this, that lowliness leads... To life without regret. Lowliness leads to life without regret. I'm going to have the message divided into three parts this morning. We're going to talk about the necessity of humility, the difference between regret and repentance, and the place of grace. The necessity of humility, the difference between regret and repentance, and the place of grace. I'm going to exhort you or try to make application to your lives in this way. I hope that we would together learn lowliness that leads to godly repentance and enjoy life without regret. That together we would learn the lowliness that leads to godly repentance and enjoy life without regret. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10, as I said this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I believe you can use one of our uh, pew Bibles there and take it as our gift to you if you don't own one. And I think it's on page 170. If you don't see Judges up at the top corner with the chapter 6, then I've told you the wrong page. Uh, But it's within there. It's it's at the early parts of the Old Testament, so you can turn there. And the large number will be the chapter number, and the small number will be the verse number, so you can try and follow along with me. But before we get to all that, Uh, Let's pray together this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning, poor and needy. We need a fresh experience of your grace. Father, this week, I am certain that we have all stumbled and fallen, that we have all sinned against you and acted in disobedience. And I'm certain that we have forgotten the gospel. Father, remind us this morning of your grace of your lordship over our lives, of the joy that we have in you. Father, remind us that we have been saved out of slavery to sin and into this church, into a community that uh, helps to work together to make us more like you and on to mission that we might proclaim your glorious salvation to the world because you've called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, we praise you this morning. Help us to make sense of your good and perfect and holy word. Help us to understand it, that we might apply it to our own lives. Father, we thank you that you've chosen people foolish and weak like us to reveal the power of the gospel to, to reveal salvation to us. Father, help us this morning to behold you, to see you, and to savor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So starting with verse 1 of chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. That's a summary of what's to follow. And if you've been with us, this is part of the judges cycle where the people forget what God has told them to do. And so they sin or do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And we summarized evil way back then, way back when as forgetting what God has said and turning to our own ways, turning to idols, turning away from God. So Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Verse 2, And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. 
For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel. No sheep, no ox, no donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Things are so bad in Israel that they're hiding. They're taking refuge in ravines and caves and in strongholds. The Midianites are not concerned about killing them, but of robbing and plundering them. I mean, can you imagine working the ground for, uh, you know, from spring to fall? I don't know how the seasons work over there. Maybe it's spring to fall. But in the time where you're working the ground, you're getting ready, and it's just about harvest time, and your crops are starting to pop up. Uh, I like tomatoes sometimes, and there's a big, juicy red tomato. It's, we're about ready to go out and collect that. And then raiders swoop in and take all of the vegetation. All that hard work was for nothing. That's what's going on. The Midianite raiding parties are riding in on their camels and they're taking everything from Israel. They're devastating them. They're destroying everything. And Israel, the people that are supposed to live in the land in a distinctive way that represents God, they're the people of God, they're supposed to be a light unto the world, have turned away from God into idols. And so instead of inhabiting the land and being a beacon of light, they're hiding in caves and in ravines. Like locusts for seven years, Midian is oppressing them. This would be both devastating to the economy, and I imagine that it would be devastating emotionally, constantly living in the fear of the coming of the raiders, of the oppression. Finally, in verse 6, Israel is made low enough to, to cry out to the Lord. Block says it this way. Uh, verse 6 captures the Israelite disposition toward their calamities. In a single word that can be translated impoverished, or literally, Israel became small, says much more about her emotional state and about her economic condition. Israel is completely paralyzed before the Midianite menace. And they cry out, verse 6, the people of Israel cry out for help to the Lord. See, the oppression of Israel enables them to recognize their need. And so they cry out to God. Something they never would have done without seeing their need. This reminds me, this week, uh, Chelsea and I went to do our Christmas with her mother and my mother. And uh, we visited the, the great state of North Carolina. And uh, some of you probably saw on the news the ice storm that went across Atlanta. And uh, we experienced a little bit of that ourselves. And in the drive that it takes to go from Raleigh over to, to Topsail Island, where my mom lives, uh, we, we just encountered a whole lot of terrible road conditions. I mean, you couldn't see the interstate. Uh, we had baby strapped in his car seat back there. And because ice, when it was hitting my windshield, was like freezing on impact, I had to have the heat cranked way, way up. And so it's really hot in the car. So we've also got a window cracked in the back to try and let some of the heat out. And the baby's crying for about two hours all the way there. He fell asleep, of course, just before we arrived. As, uh, I guess that was good for those last five minutes. But uh, the next day, my mom went out with, uh, with her husband, and they, they went out and went to the store and, and got some things and came home. And she, she kind of laughingly told me, you know, the little bit of salt that they have over there on the coast in Carolina was sold out. 
And, and those things that you used to scrape the ice off of the windshield of your car, gone. Couldn't find one. And she kind of said, well, thankfully, you know, we, we came from up outside of Pittsburgh, so we, were, we, we know the snow a little bit. She's like, thankfully, we have all that stuff already. But some of these people, they just don't even know that they need it until it snows here like this. And so uh, they all ran out to purchase those items so that they could get in their cars and travel safely. See, they didn't recognize uh, what they needed until the need arose. I think that's so true in our life. We don't recognize we need something until we need it. Uh, this also makes me think of when I was younger. I'll spare you all the details, but uh, I used to do a little bit of hiking. And so on one particular hike, I got stung by a bee, uh, no big deal, and uh, continued with my, my friend along our hike for another hour or so until he turned around and uh, recognized that my face was quite swollen. Uh, and he immediately told me, we need to go to the hospital. And so we did that. And I realized, hey, I'm allergic to bees, and I need to carry one of these epinephrine pens that you give to try and preserve my life. Sometimes we don't know we need something until our need is exposed. God uses the Midianites to expose Israel's need for a deliverer, for a rescue. They're made low. They become small. They realize they cannot protect or deliver themselves. They are humbled. But what is lowliness? What is humility? think that humility is a sense of subordination to God that is dependent upon grace for all knowing and all believing. After all, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And then James in chapter 1, verse 21, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Humility gladly depends on God. And happily serves out of love. The humble person joyfully submits to God's lordship over their life. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story of a doctor walking his dog in a park. And a doctor would take his dog for a walk each and every day. And the dog would always thrash against the leash. I don't know if you've ever had a dog like this. I have where they're kind of pulling you along. The more they're walking you than you're walking them, right? So the, the, the young doctor has his dog, and he thrashes against the leash every day for about a year. They take the same walk in the same park, same route. So finally, one day, the doctor says to himself, I'm going to take him off the leash. He's raging. He says, I'm going to take him off the leash. I'm going to see what happens. The dog knows the pattern. He's been with me now. We're good friends. Uh, we'll see what happens. So he takes the dog off the leash, and the dog sprints off in the other direction, right? He thinks, great. The last I'm going to see of that dog. You know, I thought we had this great relationship. Things were going well. But what he does is he, he continues his walk, just like he normally would through the park. And after about 10 minutes, over the hill comes, you guessed it, his dog. And the dog comes up and falls in step with him and takes the rest of the walk without a leash. It was the last day that the dog went for a walk on the leash. They didn't need it anymore. See, the, the dog was obedient. It recognized that it was completely dependent upon his master and that the master was good and wise, and that he would provide for him. And so happily, he walked in step with the master. No leash needed. Likewise, we ought to humbly recognize our lowly position before God. Indeed, that we have nothing that we have not received, and that we are fully dependent upon God. We oughtn't uh, rage against the law, as it were, but joyfully submit to God's will for our lives and walk with him.
After all, he is wise and he is good. We are dependent upon him for life. He is the bread of life. We need to humbly follow him. We need to recognize our lowliness. The humble person also has what I'll call a Philippians 2 mindset. The humble person considers others more significant than themselves. The humble person does nothing from selfish ambition or from conceit or from pride. The humble person looks to the interests of others. The humble person has the mind of Christ. Do you have the mind of Christ? Do you think of others? I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. He says this, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Who do you think the most about? Yourself or others? Let me exhort you to stop thinking about what you can get out of the church or out of other people and to start thinking about how you can give. That is having the mind of Christ. Service. Humility, lowliness, considering others more significant than yourself. Thinking about how you can serve your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than what you can do for you. Stop thinking about you and start thinking about others. Who will you in humility serve this week? How will you look to someone else's interest? Humility and lowliness lead us into repentance. However, we'll see that Israel's becoming small or their lowliness, their humility is counterfeit. It's untrue. You see, their cry, we're going to learn, is not a cry of repentance, but of regret. Block points out, there's no hint of repentance, only a cry of pain. And so God sends a prophet. Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. See, the prophet's message consists in two parts. It's a survey of God's past actions on Israel's behalf. And then an indictment of Israel for her treacherous response to who God is. See, the prophet is sent to convict Israel of her sin. It's going to remind them of who God is and who they are. And it should remind us of who God is and who we are. Who is God? Again, verse 8. He is the one that delivered them from Egypt, brought them out of the house of slavery, delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed them and drove them out before them. He was the one that gave them the land. He's the one that has driven out sin from our life. He's the one that has rescued us from our desperate condition. He's rescued us from ourselves. Who is Israel? He's the one to whom he said, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Ammonites and and those who are in the land that you dwell. You shall not fear them, but you should fear me. He said the same thing to us. I shall be the Lord your God. I demand exclusive devotion. And then here's here's the verdict. 
but you have not obeyed my voice. That's what the prophet says to Israel, and it's, uh, it's what the Bible says to us. We have not obeyed his voice. We'll respond to the truth about who God is and the truth about who we are with either lowliness or loftiness, with either humility or pride, with godly sorrow or with worldly sorrow. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, writing to the Corinthians, he says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved or sorrowed, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, here's the key. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. Godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief or worldly sorrow produces death. Israel exemplifies to us here worldly sorrow. The people are regretful but not repentant. The two things are are similar, but they couldn't be more different. Regret, grief, sorrow does not produce any real change. It's simply sorry over the consequences of sin rather than the sin itself. I often think of the kid with his hand in the cookie jar, right? Mom comes in and catches him. He's not sorry about stealing the cookie. Sorry that he got caught. And as soon as any consequence for that behavior goes away, guess what that kid's going to do? The behavior is going to come back. He's going to be slipping that hand in the cookie jar once more. Because he's not repentant. He doesn't want to change his action. He's sorry that he got caught. He's sorry about the consequences. Worldly sorrow. Sorry about the consequences. It's concerned with the world rather than the relationship with God. Timothy Keller writes on this. Worldly sorrow, loftiness, pride stays regretful. While repentance removes all regret about the past. Why? Real repentance comes to focus on the only real permanent result of sin, the loss of the Lord. Repentance always makes us more able to accept and move past the things that have happened. When we realize that God has forgiven us and we haven't lost him, we feel that the earthly results are rather small in comparison. We say, I deserve worse than what happened. The real punishment fell on Jesus. And will never come to me. The real punishment fell on Jesus. And will never come to me. Genuine, humble, lowly repentance, lowliness leads to life without regret. I say life without regret because that verse we read says godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And what salvation means is to be preserved from harm, to be safe in heaven with our Father. It means, for the Christian, life together with God. Life without regret. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to life without regret. Life abundant. Life with God. Humility, lowliness, godly sorrow. 
they bring us into a position and a posture of repentance that acknowledges who God is rightly and who we are, sinners in need of his grace. Keller continues, uh, regret is all about us, how I'm being hurt, how my life is ruined, how my heart is breaking. But repentance, it's all about God, how he has been grieved, how his nature as the creator and redeemer is being trampled on, how his repeated saving actions are being trivialized, and how we're trying to use him in a way that is manipulative. True repentance leaves us with no regrets. Because we know that through the cross, our relationship with Jesus Christ has been restored. Let me ask you, have you been practicing a counterfeit humility? A counterfeit repentance? Are you living with worldly regret or true, lowly, humble repentance? Have you been living with worldly sorrow? Just sorry you got caught, just sorry about the consequences of sin. Or a godly sorrow that leads to true repentance, to true life change. I think a, a good practice in evaluating our lives is, uh, is discerning how we're either growing in grace or if we're kind of stuck in the mud, spinning our wheels. Uh, a good question or litmus test of this is to ask, is the sin in my life a pattern? Is it a habit? Have I really just kind of uh, cuddled up close to an idol that I don't really want to call an idol? Or am I struggling against sin? Am I growing daily? Uh, an issue in this type of evaluation can be that it's, it's quite difficult to evaluate our own hearts, isn't it? We can deceive ourselves into thinking that uh, we've made no progress at all and that we're the worst person in the world. Or we can deceive ourselves into thinking, man, I'm making all kinds of progress. This holiness thing, I'm pretty much there. You know, we can deceive ourselves either way, which is why it's important to live our lives in community with one another. In community known as the church, which is the means by which God intends for us to be built up, to be strengthened, to be brought into maturity, to be made more Christ-like. You see, the Christian life is not meant to be lived in solitude. It's meant to be lived in community because it's through relationship with one another that will sharpen one another, that will encourage one another, that will challenge one another to be more like Jesus. See, Christian fellowship, Christian community cannot be had on the cheap. You can't purchase it at a discount counter. You have to work for it. You have to be around people that you don't like that much. Me, me I spend time with Herschel, all right? But you have to be together. You have to rub shoulders Encourage one another towards good deeds and towards love. We grow by spending time together, not just here for an hour on Sunday morning. The Christian life is not a game to be played at. It is all of life. Coming here doesn't save you. Knowing Jesus saves you. And if you truly know Jesus, if his heart is truly your heart, then your desire will be to know more about him and to become more like him. I hope that throughout the week you are engaging with Christ, that you've seen him as beautiful, that you desire him above all else, like you're in a desert and he is the water. That indeed he is your strength and your portion. How are you doing living in community? 
God sends a prophet to convict the people of Israel of their sin. But here's the question. Do the people repent? Do they repent? Well, the text shows us, we're not going to go into the text in verse 11, that the answer is no. There's no sign of repentance. Which shows us the place of grace. The place of grace. There's no repentance, yet verse 11 shows us the beginning of something marvelous. We expect from the prophet's condemnation that God will bring down more punishment on his people. But we're surprised to learn that God is going to raise up his deliverer, his judge, Gideon, anyway. This is an entirely gracious act. You see that? The people are wrong. They're unrepentant. They're just regretful. Yet God commissions his judge anyway. He raises up the deliverer anyway. What does this show us? The place of grace. God's generous grace comes first. God works, then we respond. It shows us that we are broken people with a faithful God. It shows us that grace comes before repentance. See that? Grace comes before repentance. Keller says it this way. God does not wait for us to repent before he begins to save us. Romans 5, 8 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God does not begin to save us because we repent. We repent because he's begun to save us. He's begun his saving work in us through the external work of his son, that's the cross, and the internal work of his spirit. That's the changing of your heart. So that you can acknowledge God as God. God's prophet explains to the people that why, uh, he explains them why they're in the mess that they're in. And then we see the story continues and that God takes them out of that mess despite themselves. And eventually leads them to a proper repentance. Friends, we need to humbly repent. Just like Israel, we have sinned. And I think in church we use the word sin a lot of times and we're not really sure uh, what it means. And so I'll define it for us right quick. Uh, It means to do evil, to turn away from the Lord, to forget who God is and serve idols instead. Sin sin simply comes from an old English archery term, uh, which means to miss the mark. And so if you think of it uh, like an archery board, that's where you shoot arrows if you're not familiar with archery. Uh, And there's a bullseye. And when somebody would shoot the arrow and miss the bullseye, there was a guy there with a wooden sign that would hold up hold it up and it would say sin on it. So that simply means to, to miss the mark. And you see, God is the bullseye. He is perfect. He is holy. And the Bible tells us in Romans that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all missed the mark. Romans also tells us that the wages of sin, what you earn when you sin, what you earn when you miss the mark, what you earn when you're not perfect like God is perfect and um, I hope this doesn't come as a surprise, but you are not perfect. What you earn is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But God gives us grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were still lost in our sins, God sent a deliverer. He raised up a true and better judge. A judge that invites us to repent and follow him. God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely merciful. 
And at the cross, we see that he is just and the justifier. At the cross, we see him uphold his righteousness and his holiness and his mercy and his love simultaneously. He gives us a just judgment. That is, we deserve death. Sin earns death. Yet he treats us with mercy. You see, Jesus takes our place and he takes the punishment that we deserve and he offers to us his reward. Life without regret. Salvation. Life together with him. Will you give up your sin this morning? Will you give your sin to Jesus and receive his grace by repenting? Non-Christian for the first time and Christian, I'm sure you need to do it again this morning for the millionth time. I know I need to. Christian and non-Christian alike, I ask you, will you repent and follow Jesus? Will you rejoice in the life that he gives? Life without regret. And being made a new creature, will you follow him and know what it's like to have your mortality swallowed up by life? Will you believe the gospel? Learn lowliness. Learn how to enjoy life without regret.